As developers hone their craft, becoming more productive often means learning utilities and tools that run on the command line. The right combination of various parsing commands chained together through pipes can enable engineers to quickly and efficiently automate many ad hoc data processing tasks. In this episode, I speak with Adam Gordon-Bell about some of his favorite command line tools. We also discuss his role as a developer advocate for Earthly, a powerful tool for building software in a repeatable and understandable way. Adam is also the host of the Co-Recursive podcast. Adam, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Great to be here, Kyle. So the way we initially connected was I wanted to talk to a few people about different development tools. One of the ones that I guess initially was the keyword search that got us connected was for JQ. So I want to get into that and some others, but I thought a great place to start would just be to unpack your development story. Tell me a little bit about how you first got interested in coding. Yeah. So what happened was I took a class in, I think in grade 11 in high school, where they taught us Turbo Pascal. I don't exactly know why I took this class, but I did have a computer at home and we got to like split up into groups of two and make like a Yahtzee game. And it was super fun. It was just like building things. Like it was like a a DOS program. And I don't know if you're familiar with Yahtzee, but you like roll dice and then you have to like score things like kind of using poker type hands. So there's a lot of just writing like if statements and, and trying to draw things on the screen. But it was like, I just really got hooked to that iteration where you like change something and then run it and see what happens. And I mean, it probably didn't hurt that it was a game. So it was a super fun experience for me. And yeah, I've just been chasing that high ever since, I guess. Yeah, I had a similar path. I did some Turbo Pascal at one point. And I think in those days, it was, I don't want to sound like uh, you know, an old man complaining about how easy it is the kids have it, but it was a lot more arduous to get anything to even compile and run. Have you noticed great changes in the developer experience over the years? I mean, definitely. I don't have a great sense for what the beginner experience is because I'm not a beginner anymore. But one oh, thing sure, I would say, yeah. yeah, one thing I would say is like, it was harder, like, you know, Turbo Pascal, you know, there wasn't like extensive tutorials or whatever, like we had like some textbook. But on the other hand, it, it was a very small world, right? Like now it seems like you could just like try to learn about React and never get finished. Like, you know, it was an easier time in that the things you had to learn were, were much more contained and small, I think. So if the foundations began in grade 11, uh, were you on sort of a typical computer science track or how'd you get to where you are? Yeah, so I went to university for computer science and I enjoyed that, especially, you know, when we got to actually build programs and it was less theoretical. And then I, you know, left school, got a job as a software developer and Yeah, I was just so excited that I was getting paid to like build things. Sometimes I get frustrated, you know, day to day. And I try to think like, I try to remind myself, like there was a time I was just so excited that somebody would pay me to do this. But yeah, and then, I don't know, my my career has continued from there. and, And now I work in developer relations. Tell me a little bit about what that role is like. What does someone in developer relations do on a typical day? Yeah, it's a great question. So I've been doing it for like almost exactly a year. So I'm not the most knowledgeable about the whole spectrum, but I can tell you what my day looks like. So our company makes developer tools. And so it's important to kind of be able to verify that they work to talk to developers. So I've done things like making video tutorials for Earthly. 
doing blog writing, speaking at conferences or applying to speak at conferences, writing documentation around how you use various software. In October coming up, we have Hacktoberfest. So we try to, our project is on GitHub. So we try to uh, try to help people who want to help contribute from the outside. Yeah, things like that. Very cool. I want to ask you about Earthly, but let's do some prerequisites. I would hope any listener to Software Engineering Daily already knows about Docker. Otherwise, we've got archives to go through. But I'm not convinced every listener is going to know about Make. Could you tell us a little bit about the Make tool? Yeah, so Make is like a traditional Unix build tool that it has basically targets that you can specify for doing various tasks. And it's traditionally used with C a lot of times, but can be used with anything. So you could describe with the make file how to turn a C file into an object file, and then those object files into an executable, how to include headers. So it's a somewhat declarative way to specify steps in a build process and dependencies between them. And the idea is that, you know, if you change a file, then it knows what to do to produce a new executable that has those updated results and kind of doing the minimum amount. So what does Earthly's solution do? So Earthly is a free source available command line tool for building software. I think it's helpful to maybe understand the backstory of it. So the Vlad, who originally created the project, he worked at Google for some time where they have a build tool called Blaze and they open source it as Bazel. If you work at Google or if you kind of follow how Google does software development with like a large monorepo, it's a really great development experience. It's very easy to build software, have it happen quickly, distribute the builds, and you know not have flaky builds. And it does this a number of ways, but one of the ways is by having a sandbox. So when, when you are building things, it puts things in a sandbox so that you're sure that there's not missing dependencies that you haven't included. So Vlad left Google and he sort of wanted a tool like this, but he wanted one that could work you know, with the way that most people develop software, which doesn't necessarily tend to look like the Google giant monorepo and thousands of people working process. So what he noticed was that, well, sandboxes kind of exist in the form of containers and, and Docker containers. And so could I take something like a makefile, as we were describing, and then use this kind of Docker ability to have sandboxes, put those two together and get something much like Blaze or Bazel that gives you a way to make builds that are fast, that can be parallel, but that are also always, you know, reproducible. You're always getting a repeatable result and avoid the problems of like flaky builds. Could you give some examples of the pains people experience when they have one of those flaky builds? What is Earthly saving me from? Yeah. So like imagine that you have some sort of like Jenkins is pretty popular, continuous integration product and you know you're working on your code locally Kyle and you know you run some unit tests but maybe not all of them or something and then you know you commit your code and then Jenkins starts to build it and then it runs into a problem like maybe there was something on your local that was making it work which you don't have installed on the Jenkins server or maybe there's just a test that fails sometimes and it requires some dependency that you don't have so you don't tend to run it locally so then you have to try to figure out what this problem is and kind of track it down, which can be a big pain, especially if you're going to just try to like make a change and then push it again and see if Jenkins runs it again. But by having a build process that you can run totally locally on your machine because it is sandboxed because it's in a Docker container, 
That means that you can do the build locally just as easily as you can in CI. Like they're identical processes. So that kind of saves you from having to deal with that flakiness. Or at least the flakiness should be consistently happening across your local environment and the build server. So it'll be easier to track down. And what does a quick start look like? If I want to introduce my software application into this process, how do I get going? Yeah, so there is a earth file, which is similar to a make file. It looks a little bit like a number of targets. So let me give you an example. So I'm going to build my Scala project, and I have a number of steps for it. I need to compile my code. I need to run some unit tests. I need to run some integration tests. So I could make each of those as a target in a text file, one called compile, colon, and then I would put you know, whatever the steps are that I would run to do a compile. I would put a test step and I would have the test step extend from the compile step and then do the various test commands, similar for integration. And, and I might build up a whole bunch of these over time, linting, et cetera. And then I would just run this by calling a certain target using Earthly. So if I wanted to run the integration tests, I would say, earthly.integrationTest. And then if it depended on the compile step, like it, it kind of works backwards and figures out what needs to be executed to get that result. So that's kind of what using it would look like. And then in your continuous integration process, like if you were using Jenkins or GitHub Actions or whatever, you would just call the same action. So rather than building up complicated logic within your build server, within a YAML file for GitHub Actions or something, you can just put all the logic in this kind of dockerized format, and then it's easy to work with. Can you give me a sense of how that helps with collaboration and team exchange and things like that? What do I share with my coworkers? What do you share with your coworkers? In other words, so do I, you know, are we all building to some the same image? Should I be checking that earthly file into GitHub? What are some of the common workflows people follow? Yeah, so you put this file into your source control, the same way you might put a make file or, or some sort of bash script that, that creates your program. And then that should mean that anybody can do this same step. If somebody needs to change the process, then the file is there and available. So one thing that's great about this kind of simple format that I'm describing is that it's simple. So oftentimes, at least in the places that I've worked, at some point, these building processes can get very complex and there's a lot of steps and there's just like one guy who kind of knows how it works. And if something needs to be changed, you need to go to that guy. And he's like the build guru, whether uh -huh. officially or not, like that's his job. He's the only guy who understands this. So one thing we try to do with Earthly is make this whole format very simple and something that you can understand at first pass, because we want it to be something where anybody on the team, if they need to add something new to the build process, they can just step in and change it. So yeah, it's in source control. It's fairly easy to understand compared to other options out there. And everybody can work on it together. As languages has evolved different, you know, I guess I started with C way back when, and I used Make to do all my compilations because that was the easiest way to do it. There was a tool outside of C built for that. But we see a lot of projects as time has gone on, like NPM for Node, that help with a lot of these steps. Do you see that affecting adoption? It seems obvious that C and probably Go programmers would take right to this. Is there a good use case for Node developers as well? Yeah, it's a great question. Like where we see people using Earthly is often they have more than one tool. So yeah, NPM is a great example. I mentioned Scala. 
earlier. In both those cases, you know, you have a tool, NPM or SBT, that you probably do a lot of these things with. But what happens when you start having more than one language you're dealing with, right? And now you want something where you can say, you know, compile the backend in Java and then run some integration tests against it that were written in JavaScript using NPM. Like you can start writing, say, bash scripts that kind of wrap around these like common actions that, that cross languages. You could use a make file or like you can use Earthly. So that's really where we see a lot of uptick is like when you're using more than one language, there's more than one tool and you need ways to do things that, that cross them. As projects mature and get bigger, I often see the build steps and sometimes the unit tests kind of exploding and there being a few, you know, maybe jerry-rig ways we skip things with flags and (laughs) stuff like that. How does Earthly help with these larger scale, more mature solutions? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say that there's like, we have this solution that just makes everything easier. I think that we do in a sense, but in a sense, like building software and testing it is just hard. So what we try to do is just offer a way to do so very declaratively. And we try to, we do, we're able to infer kind of where things can be run in parallel. But I think it's just, if you want to have a really solid and reliable build, you need to invest in it, right? Like you may have software and it fails in a certain case. So you start adding tests for that. And then these tests build up over time. You need to consider whether they're valuable or not. If a test fails 30% of the time, like, is it really validating what's happening? So Earthly tries to make builds quick. It tries to make them reproducible even more so. Like, we don't want a build where in sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I think it's just an area that requires a lot of investment. If you want reliable software, I talked to Richard Hip, who works on SQLite. He spends three days just doing his build process for each release of SQLite. And that's because SQLite, it's used everywhere. It's a very important product. And like in order to test it correctly, he just needs to run, like he said, billions of tests. I don't think there's a tool that can make that happen in 15 minutes. It's just a complicated build process. So it requires investment. Good advice for sure. But I was actually leaning towards what I think are some clever optimizations Earthly does. Oh. <laughs> um, in the same way Docker, you know, will cache the layers as I push them. So maybe my first build is hard and the future ones become, you know, pretty easy. Do I get any of those sorts of niceties when I work with Earthly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Earthly uses BuildKit, which is an open source project that's also used by Docker in, in the newest versions. And it does layer caching. So yeah, as you were saying, it is able to detect changes in the file system and then it uses a union file system to cache previous results so that if you say you have the process we laid out earlier with compile and test steps and now you make a change to the test to a specific test it will you know be able to know that it doesn't have to recompile things if the tests were outside of it it's using the file structure and caching to determine where steps can be saved Do you have a common persona? Who's the first person introducing Earthly into an organization? Yeah, so I think that oftentimes what we see is somebody hears about Earthly, maybe from listening to this, and they they try it out as, you know, maybe on a side project or something like that. And they like it, and they are probably a developer who's been doing this for a little while and, and is aware of challenges around builds. And then they kind of bring it into their company. So that's 
that person is is probably you know a senior developer. Maybe he's the build guru person or, or she that we described earlier, the person that everybody goes to with the build so they're frustrated. Or maybe it's just somebody who knows that this is an area that could use an improvement. And yeah, that's usually how we see the product get introduced. Makes sense. What's the future for Earthly? Is there, or maybe it exists or it could exist, is there room for an Earthly as a service type offering that a lot of tools, you know, that are free and available can offer, you know, a mature or more enterprise oriented scaler options? Anything like that in the planning? Yeah, there is, but I can't tell you what it is. But <laughs> All right, well, maybe come back when it's ready, I guess. Yeah, we, you know, we built this tool and it seems to be quite popular. So what we're doing is trying to yeah, build an offering around it. And we're very focused around the software development lifecycle, like improving it. And yeah, wait and see. We have some ideas around where this is going. Very cool. Yeah, I got interested in Earthly in the same way I first got interested in Docker. It filled all these obvious pain points and seemed like it could be helpful for a lot of development processes. I also like that it has that developer appeal. I like working at the command line, having control via, you know, straightforward text or things I can look at in a text editor for configuration, that kind of thing. I'd love to expand our conversation, talk a little bit more about the secret tools like that that are in your tool belt. I would hope most developers are familiar with grep and maybe we've each got our own little recipes that we like to run. What are some of those things you've leaned into heavily over the years? So JQ is a command line tool for querying JSON documents. So I have used it for years for pretty printing a JSON document, which is the least of its uses. But say you make a curl request and you get back some sort of big JSON thing and it's hard to read because it's all on one line or whatever. You can pipe it to JQ and JQ will just print it out nicely. But it's also JQ stands for JavaScript query, I believe. And it can do all kinds of things. It can transform and extract elements from JQ. So... I spent some time recently just trying to understand the tool because it was one of those things. It's a super powerful tool. Whenever I have a problem, it was there, but I never really mastered it. So yeah, I've spent some time trying to figure out how it works and I've really become impressed with it. Could you expand a little bit on some of those querying features? What might someone be able to get quickly out of a JSON document? Yeah, so the easiest thing you can do is just extract items from a JSON document. So it lets you treat a JSON document that you pipe into it as if it's a JavaScript object. So if if the document is like an object and then it has a key called Kyle and then a, a key on that called like last name, you can just tell JQ like dot Kyle dot last name and it will print out that value. So that's one of the easiest ways that you can use it is just extracting single or, or multiple values. You can also use it to extract arrays. So you could have a JavaScript document that contains an array of items. You could extract certain elements from that array. You could use it to take those array items and take them out of the JavaScript context and put them each on a new line, which is very useful if you want to pipe it into some other Unix command. And it it just keeps going from there. So it's actually a fully featured, the query language for JQ is actually a fully featured like Turing complete programming language, which I didn't really know going in, but you can do almost anything in it. But what I found is usually you just want these couple basic things, how to extract things, how to transform things. Yeah, maybe it's my lack of imagination, but all the use cases I'm coming up with are when I'm doing some sort of integration development, consuming or interacting with a REST API, I'm sending and getting back JSON and 
Maybe I'm just interested in one element, so wouldn't it be great if I could grab that? So definitely appealing to me as sort of a workaday CLI tool. Does this belong in integration tests or in some production pipeline? I mean, that probably depends on your use case, right? I think if you're using it inside of an integration test, then, I mean, maybe if your integration test is a shell script, maybe you make a request and then you want to pipe it through JQ and and check a value and return true or false. You could do that. I have not done that, so I'm not sure. When you think about the landscape of tools you can work with, you know, we've got on one end sort of the Vim and command line, hardcore, bare metal sort of approach. And of course, every day there's new, clever IDE tools and plugins to be, you know, functioning, I guess, at higher levels of the stack. Maybe we even say no code is sort of an icing on the cake. Where do you spend most of your development time? It's definitely more in the command line type space. So I'm using VS Code but I do have Vim bindings in it. So I don't. that's kind of a middle place, I guess. And I definitely spend a lot of time in the command line. And I've been learning more and more recently. Like I've been using the command line more and more in recent history. And I've just been amazed at the type of workflows that you can build just by gluing these simple tools together. Are there any tools you'd like to highlight? Things that maybe aren't as popular as they should be or things developers should be picking up that they don't already use? Yeah, there's a number of tools that I think are pretty cool. One is Fuzzy Finder. The Fuzzy Finder is a tool that just lets you easily do a fuzzy find in your command line. So a fuzzy find is sort of just like a text search. So the way that I use it is like if I'm looking for a certain directory in the command line, I can type like ls and then star star, which I have like bound to Fuzzy Finder. And it will bring up a kind of text UI where as I type, it will filter down through all my paths until I find what I need. So it's super handy just to be able to quickly find out what I have on my file system in my computer. Another one that I use is called Zoxide. I'm not really sure if the name makes a lot of sense to me, but basically when you're changing directories using CD, Zoxide, you can just replace your CD with it. And the cool thing that it does is, is much like the Fuzzy Finder, it lets you change directories just using a substring of the directory you're working in. So oftentimes, like I have all these folders and they're like nested three or four levels deep and say I want to change from one to another. I don't want to have to like, you know, cd dot dot slash dot dot slash and like kind of build up the path that way. Yeah, Java is particularly bad with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Java namespaces are, yeah. So Zoxide, if you, you can just alias your CD to Zoxide and then it will let you CD just based on a part of that path. So you could just, you know, put in the name of the class or the namespace you're looking for and it, it'll figure out where to go. So super neat tool. There's this tool called Funky, which has an interesting name. But Funky is a command line tool for building up bash aliases. So you type like Funky slash A and then get image is one I have. And then it gives you like a little prompt where you can write in a command. And it's a little hard to describe, but it just allows you to write little shortcuts within your terminal. And then they are stored in a file that's called .funky in that directory. So it lets you have like little specific commands within your directory. So I have a blog for Earthly, and there's a bunch of commands I have to run in order to like start up the site or shut down the site or generate images. And so this allows me just a very smooth way to write a bunch of little aliases. And it kind of gives me that experience, like I'm working in like a REPL, but I'm at the command line, which, which I really like. 
Very cool. I think I want to try that one out. Yeah. I can keep going. <laughs> yeah, let's do another one. I think these are all chained together very well. I like them all so far. Yeah, so there's this tool called McFly. I don't know where people come up with these names, to be honest. I guess there's only so many names out there. Yeah. So if you're in your terminal and you hit Control-R, you can you know, get a history of the commands you've run and use that to easily narrow down to what you're going to to the command you're going to execute. Like say you're looking for the the previous like complicated Docker command you ran with like volume bindings and all this stuff. Like you can use your control R to easily find these. So McFly takes this concept and extends it. So the creator made this observation that when you're trying to find recent commands using your history, like there's actually a bunch of information that's being thrown out by just looking blindly at all the commands in your history file. One is like whether the command successfully ran or not. So if you ran something and it failed, like you don't really want that to autocomplete as like a possible thing you want to run in the future because it was probably just wrong. Another one is what directory you're in. So as I mentioned with Funky, like sometimes there's specific actions that you run in specific places and they're not really relevant in other places. And another one is just when you go to pick from a list of options, like which ones do you select, right? If I usually type earthly, and then autocomplete it to X, then maybe that should be the first option when I look again. So McFly actually uses a very small like neural net to keep track of all these details. So rather than this giant history file, it actually keeps a dictionary of the various commands you run in various directories and tries to learn what the best options are to present to you. I guess it's like a very small reinforcement learning algorithm. So it's a very neat optimization to trying to suggest options. Fascinating. I want to try that one for sure. Well, that's a great list. I'm going to ask you a sort of impossible question, but do you have a sense of the time I'm going to save on a weekly basis if I really invest and train myself on these tools? How do I know I'm going to get the return on investment I'm looking for in productivity? Yeah, that is an impossible question. I would say that you maybe should just try to note while you're working, like, what do you spend a lot of repetitive time doing and what could be improved? And just spend a little bit of time trying to improve your workflow in areas where you see that a lot of time is spent. Because I think the thing that can happen is that not just with command line, but with IDEs or whatever, like, you just get really into, like, customizing everything to be perfect. And you can burn a lot of time just, you know, adopting things that are... Like, I think that if you spend the time to try to fix things that you know are problems in your current workflow, it's just a lot more valuable than trying to polish everything on your local environment or try out every new tool. It is fun to try out new tools, but practically you have to be careful about the time you spend on adoption. Good advice. I totally agree. I see this as something that novice programmers often underappreciate a little bit. If I ask you to be the guy selling the argument for getting down into the command line and being more productive... What are some of the things that would entice me to explore these tools if I'm not yet too familiar with them? So let me sell you on it. So Unix is an operating system built around this philosophy of files, right? And Linux and Mac OS, and I guess to a certain extent, Windows inherit from it this idea of like files being very preeminent. And at the command line, there are a lot of tools that are based around files and pipes and it's a very powerful little language once you learn it. So your command line is not just a way to fire off commands, but it is a way to compose together little commands that can do things. So yeah, you know, you could get something from a file, 
You could grep results from it. You could pipe that into, I don't know, a Python one-liner that does some lookup on some service and then write the results back to a file. You can definitely have, with these small amount of tools that you can combine in various ways, a lot of functionality available to you. I'm wondering if you've seen any, it seems amenable to me that someone who's really good at command line and piping things together would not only fit naturally and be an earthly user, but would probably mix those two spices that they'd come up with the earthly files that have, you know, a couple clever Unixy things to do a step in the build process. Have you seen any especially clever use cases in the people who've deployed it? That is a good question. I mean, I think that you're definitely right that Earthly is is very much looking at the world through this command line perspective. And so we do tend to have users that use the command line a lot, as well as the developers on the team. Like one interesting thing that slowly emerged with the open source Earthly product is that a lot of our, our unit tests are actually shell scripts. And I don't think anybody planned that, but it's just, it fits very well with how we're doing things. Can we explore a little bit about being open source and the growth of that? Are you building a community or is it simply just to have the code be public and shared and open? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, I should clarify. We are using the BSL license, the business source license, which I guess is not open source in the true sense of it. I'm not a lawyer, but the way I understand it is the BSL license turns the code into open source after some time has passed And it behaves mainly like an open source license, except with the caveat that you're not able to compete with us as a company on our commercial product. And this license is something that was, I think, pioneered by MariaDB. And the the idea that MariaDB had, to my understanding, is basically we would like to be open source, but we would like to prevent Amazon from competing with us in AWS. Yeah, makes total sense to me. Does that mean then, do you find that people react to that? Is it going to be more or less likely you'll see contributors and PRs, or are you early in that process? Yeah, we do see contributors. So we we have we do all our development on out in the open. In GitHub, we do have contributors. We're participating in Hacktoberfest, which we did last year and was a lot of fun. A lot of time we get contributors that help with documentation or with examples, but we do get occasional like really substantial contributions from the outside. We also, actually not myself so much, but the other members of the team are often contributing to BuildKit, which is what we use to run the builds, the earthly builds. And so we often find edge cases or improvements that we would need for our specific use case. And so that is also a open source project. And so we're often contributing up to the projects that we use. Very cool. Do you have Hacktoberfest plans in place for this year? Yeah, so we we have a bunch of tickets that we've labeled. Like, I think we labeled them with Hacktoberfest and good first time contributor. And yeah, so we just you know if if you want to participate in Hacktoberfest, is run by DigitalOcean, then they will give you I think a T shirt for contributing. I forget the exact ramifications, but we will also give you some stickers if you come and help. And in the past, we've gotten a lot of great features. We have now syntax highlighting in a whole bunch of editors because, you know, we didn't have anybody on the team who used Emacs, but somebody came in Hacktoberfest and contributed syntax highlighting for Emacs and for TextMate and and added examples for various languages. You can now use Earthly to build COBOL. I'm not sure how much that happens, but somebody (laughs) contributed an example. (laughs) So there's lots of fun if you want to help contribute to the project, then we'll send you some stickers. So... 
Well, tell me a little bit about how people can get on board with that. I know there's a lot of zero-time people haven't made their first open-source commit yet and are looking to do so. How can someone like that especially get involved? Yeah, so you can go to github.com slash earthly slash earthly and look under issues for the issues labeled Hacktoberfest. You can also jump in our Slack. If you go to earthly.dev, you can jump in our Slack channel and ask us questions. And yeah, we try to help people out and try to you know do whatever we can to encourage people to contribute. Yeah, and so Earthly is written in Go. Some familiarity with that would probably be helpful, but also you know we have docs and we have examples where we're trying to show how you can build things with Earthly. So if you're not familiar with Go or the technologies we're using, sometimes examples or documentation can be a great way to contribute. So yeah, just jump on our Slack channel and ask for help. When I think about Docker, I mean, not that you have to use it in every project, but it's just so ubiquitous. It's sort of the go-to solution. Do you think Earthly will eventually grow into that position that every project adopts it, or does it just suit the needs of certain projects? That's a good question. I mean, I definitely think everybody should adopt it. (laughs) Well, that's a softball one, but why? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the strengths of Earthly involve, yeah, as I said, when you are dealing with more than one language, where you're probably working on a team, where you care a lot about the speed of your build and the reliability of your build process. I mean, I think that that covers a large percentage of software development, but there's probably cases where it's not exactly a fit. Totally. Well, let's talk a little bit about co-recursive and your, your, well, your podcast, co-recursive. What can listeners find if they tune in? Yeah, co-recursive is my podcast about software development and The way it works is I like to have somebody on and have them share the story behind software being built. So it kind of has a story type structure. So I had, I mentioned earlier, Richard Hipp, who created SQLite. I had him come on and explain the process of of building SQLite, which was actually like super interesting. He started building SQLite for a battleship. It was supposed to be the database that ran on a battleship where, you know, when they take damage, they don't want basically to get a message that cannot connect a database. Like they need something that's rigorous and, and responds well to the conditions of war. And that's where he started with that. Also interviewed Brian Kernahan about the early days of Unix and, and the C language and, and times at Bell Labs. But so that is kind of the way that I structure the show is, is somebody building some piece of software and they come on and tell me and the listeners the trials and tribulations of building software. Are there any trends you're especially excited about in the software world? Trends that I'm excited about? Yeah, so I I wrote this article for the Earthly blog about command line tools. I mean, I guess we kind of covered this trend, but there's a lot of people building new command line tools, a lot of times in Rust or Go, that kind of fit this model that we were speaking of about being able to compose things together. So they kind of have the spirit of these original Unix tools, but try to extend them and improve them in some way. And so I'm pretty excited about that. A lot of people embracing this kind of like Unix as an IDE concept. I guess the antithesis of that is to say all software is going to move to no code solutions. What do you think the evolution of the software engineer's role is going to look like, you know, as we go into the future with both these possibilities in mind? Yeah, I, I really don't know. I've seen some of the like, what is it, GPT-3 and GitHub Copilot type demos, and they're pretty impressive. So what does the future hold? I mean, I guess like the number of people working in software development has just continued to increase. And I think that when new abilities appear, like, 
you know, low code, that doesn't necessarily take away from the number of things that are being built. Like I've heard in the past that, you know, when when they're able to produce more electricity, they think that that will cause the supply of electricity to go up, right? And the price of electricity to crash. But what they actually find is that demand increases to match supply. So like as things get easier to build, there's still lots more software to be built. So I don't think it will put a dent in the growth of our field. Makes sense. Yeah, totally agree. Where can people find the co-recursive podcast and you online? So I can be found online on Twitter or, or anywhere under Adam Gordon Bell. Co-recursive is co-recursive.com or just search for co-recursive or Adam Gordon Bell in your, in your favorite podcast player. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun.